to Moab. Why were they in Moab? Probably the most important question. There was a famine. They needed food. And we talked last week at, uh, to a length about how Elimelech, as a father, uh, made a choice. He made it based on food, on shelter, have a work, safety, everything that's essential. You know, the necessities uh, that he had to have. He decided that it wasn't worth staying in Israel for. It wasn't worth staying where God had put him in the promised land, which was a land flowing with what? Yeah, well, it seemed pretty barren right at this point. Why had it become barren? And I gave a long, I read like most of Deuteronomy 28. Why had the land become the way it was? Because of sin, they walked away from God. They left God. They ignored God. They got busy about all their own stuff, and God told them ahead. He told them before they ever got to the promised land. He said, listen, when you come in the promised land, you have a choice. You follow me, I will bless you. He says, but if you don't follow me, and you want to pursue the other gods of the nations around you, you want to run off and do whatever you want to do, he says, when you ignore me, here's what's going to happen. The land is not going to be fruitful. There's nothing going to come of it. Your work will be empty work. You're going to work hard. You're going to plant seed. You're going to try to raise up your crops. You're going to try to feed your families. And nothing's going to work right. He says the diseases and the sicknesses of all the other nations of Egypt is going to come upon you while you're in your land flowing with milk and honey. And he says, know that it's a direct result of your failure to obey your obey or your failure to worship your failure to keep your eyes on God God said listen I brought you here I gave you the best I told you I would provide for you and we reached back and looked at the Garden of Eden same thing God gave Adam and Eve the very 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 best they could ever ever have and yet just for the devil's lure the devil's uh, little lust of the eyes lust of the flesh pride of life he appealed to man and man made a choice that cost all of mankind. We still pay the price today because of that choice. But we saw in Elimelech's case, he, by the way, what town was he in? This is significant. It's a Christmas carol. Oh, little town of Bethlehem. They're in Bethlehem of Judea. They're in a place where, let's see what happens. Is, doesn't something big happen in the Bible? Let's see, Bethlehem, huh? A manger, yeah. star. Doesn't something happen? Virgin birth, yeah. In this town, this guy has a heritage in this town, and Limelech says, "Oh, it's just going bad. Everything's bad." Rather than turning back to the God who said, "I will provide for you," Limelech said, "You know the Moabites—they're doing pretty good over across the way." I'm going to go ahead and head over there. I'm going to take my family over there. The consequences of his decision, which all seem like, oh, logical, essential decisions, is, hey, uh, we, need, you know, we need food. We need a shelter. We need work. We need safety. But God had provided all those things and more for them already. Their compromise is necessitated by their prior compromise. They compromised God, forcing them to make a decision in which they further compromised their position and chose the rest of the world instead of God. Oh, save me. Save me, somebody. Help me. And we saw that the lack of faith they had, the lack of hope, 
turned into a lack of hope. The lack of hope turned into a lack of future and complete, and they were finished. And it was resonated in their names. Elimelech, here's a man of God. Here's a very a man whose name contains God in it. God's choice. He has two boys. And one of them's name is Sickly. And the other one's name is We're All Done. Complete. Finished. It's over. And their, their names tell part of the story. Is when you depart from God, when you leave the heritage that God has promised you as a child of God, when you leave that and you go to the world and say, I want to get mine now from that. It's the prodigal son story. This is backsliding. The prodigal son had everything with his father. He said, no, I want to go off. And I don't think he ever envisioned a pig pen in his future. I don't think Elimelech ever considered his grave in his future, but he got there, he died. The boys married Moabite women, which was not prohibited. And then they died. And so Naomi, the wife, she stuck with two Moabite women in her house, daughters-in-law. And that's where we left off, is they're stuck there. They came for salvation. Does it look like they got saved at all? And I'm talking salvation in the physical sense, not in the spiritual sense. Does it look like they got saved at all? Not at all. They had turned away from God as a nation of Israel, causing Elimelech to make a decision to turn away from God even further. Instead of going back, instead of calling out for God to have mercy, he said, no, no, we're going to go this way. We're going to go over there because it looks like the grass is greener over there in Moab country. And of course, Moab, we talked about that. Uh, Moab is the name of one of the sons of Lot. The other son was Ammon. So the Moabites and the Ammonites came from Lot. They were the result of Lot's incestuous sexual relationship with his two daughters who got him drunk so they could get pregnant so that they could fix it for God. Rather than trust on the God that delivered them from Sodom and death and provided for them, rather than Abraham who would have turned them to God, Lot instead and his daughters ended up creating two nations who are absolutely turned against God. Chemosh is the one of the gods, preliminary gods or primary gods of the Moabite people. Chemosh is a huge stone altar with a pit beneath it where they would throw logs and firewood and they would light it up. The sacrifice to make Chemosh happy, do you know what it was? You think what, it was a rabbit, chicken, duck? Babies. It was babies. They tossed their babies onto the hot, burning surface of a stone superheated idol to satisfy this God. That's where Elimelech went. That's the God he ran to. That's the country he went to for salvation. I wonder where we have run to as Christians. Who's going to save us? Do we turn to God? Did you turn to that refuge? Isn't it amazing how many people have turned to the idea of government or America as their salvation? Oh, just another stimulus check. Just give me a little more money. Folks, we're talking about the country who has sacrificed 62 million infants to the god Chamash. 
who's chopped him up and sold him. That's the God that's promoted in this country. What are we doing? Who are we turning to? I think we need to be really careful because that has been embraced. That sacrifice has been embraced at the highest levels of our nation. How can, we, how can we say anything negative about the Moabites if we're not willing to be that honest about what goes on right around us? I can't imagine living in a country with Chamash sitting out there in a the field and having to walk by it and to smell the smell of the burn and to see the marks and to recall the screams. But in America, we do it in nice little buildings where it's nice and safe and quiet and it's no problem, right? It's not our problem. We're safe in church. We have a nice little comfortable seat to sit on. We don't hear that going on. Folks, pay attention. Ruth's story tells us a lot here that we need to learn. The rest of the story, like I told you last week, is how God uses an absolute train wreck of human choice. Abandonment and hopelessness to bring salvation, redemption, and a future hope belong beyond any comparison. How God takes stupid choices like Elimelech's, stupid choices like Malion and Chilion's choice, and God brings that to an incredible story of redemption. Our failures become God's opportunities to show His grace, His mercy, His truth. There's hope. As long as there's faith in God. As long as our trust is in God, there's hope for us. Okay, we're going to read verses 6. By the way, this is just a soft little story of Ruth, right? It's just an easy little story of Ruth and a wonderful little, you know, love story that comes. But there's a lot more, right? There's a lot more. Verse 6. I'm going to read on down through 18. My eyes are a little tired this morning so I got these uh, magnifiers we'll see if they work then she arose with her daughters-in-law what were their names huh Orp. yeah and Ruth uh, what did Orpah's name mean graceful or flowing gazelle whale Orpah Orpah the whale okay let me get going here she rose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. So what might have happened, while we're sitting there in verse 6, what might have happened back in Israel, in Judea, in Bethlehem, what might have happened while Elimelech and family were in Moab? No, God... The people might have called out to God. Just like we saw through the whole book of Judges, the people cried out when they were oppressed. They confessed their sin. They reached out to God, and God, just like it says in 2 Chronicles 7.14, is that if we confess our sin and we call out to God, He will heal our land. And God started to heal the land. And this whole story of Ruth is God healing the land and God showing and demonstrating a miracle through that. Verse 7, here we go. Therefore, she went out from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, 
Return each to your mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. So she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and they wept. Then they said to her, surely we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Turn back my daughters, go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband tonight and should also bear sons, will you wait for them till they are grown? Will you restrain yourselves from having husbands? No, my daughters, for it grieves me very much for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and they wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. The Lord do so unto me and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. When she saw that she was determined to go with her. She stopped speaking to her. We're going to stop there for a second. Kind of work this way. I think they left Bethlehem in the first place. Well, it's obvious they left. It tells us. There was a famine, right? There was no food in Bethlehem. We know because we have the privilege of looking back. We know God's promise to them. A blessing or if they failed to follow God, the land would be cursed. We saw that. And so we see it actually happen. And we see that Elimelech makes a choice to run. Rather than turning back to God, we see Elimelech says, come on, family, let's go. We're going to save us. And they run to Moab. Now, the other side of that is that Naomi now sees she's minus her husband. She's minus her two sons. She has two daughter-in-laws who are not of her people. She has no grandchildren. She has nothing else to tie her to Moab. And she hears that back in Bethlehem, there's actually food. That the Lord had visited and brought food. There was no food in the manger. That's why they left Bethlehem. And now all of a sudden they've heard and there's a little hope springs up. There's something that pops up. But I want you to see it this way. The first step in the redemption of their family happens because Naomi stops trying to meld with the Moabites. She stops trying to find salvation in the Moabite people and their gods. And she turns and goes home. Another alert. Those things go off like every day. <laughs> I'm driving in my car, talking on the radio. Beep, beep. Which one is this one? Portola or again? Yeah. I've got three of them over there. Yeah, or Lake Tahoe. It ain't looking too good for old Rudy Booger's uh, place up there, that's for sure. Um, my sister, that's what we call her, Rudy Booger. That's what my dad called her. I don't know why. It's just a name, Sticks. 
But the first step in their redemption happens because Naomi takes the first step back home. And you say, man, I've got myself in life. I've got myself down this road. I've made choices that now I realize are bad choices. I've suffered consequences because of the choices I've made. You are not beyond hope. You are not beyond the reach of God's grace and mercy, no matter where you are, as long as you're breathing. As long as you have that moment to turn back to God, you are never beyond hope. I deal with the ones that are beyond hope quite often. As a part of my job, I go in. And I see the consequence of a needle in the arm. I see a consequence of overdoses. I see consequences of poor life choices. I see that, and man, no matter what I do, there's no hope. Young man that had spent 50 minutes doing CPR on chest compressions, um, he hung himself in his parents' garage at 40 years old. No hope. He just gave up. I can't help him. But as long as there's a heartbeat, as long as there's a breath, you are never beyond the reach of God's grace and mercy. Someone tries to tell you you're beyond that. Oh, you've done too much. You made bad choices. You went too far. You, did, you committed murder. You did this. You did whatever it is. Don't listen to them. Listen to God. This is God the Redeemer. God the Savior. But you know what it took? It took Naomi turning around and saying, we're going home. We're going home. That's the moment in the prodigal's son's life when he was in the pig pen and he says you know what my daddy's servants are eating better than I am a Jewish kid sitting in a pig pen just as unclean as you can get eating pig food you can't get uncleaner than that spent all his money on prostitutes and partying and he's laying there in the pig pen thinking man the pigs are eating better than I am my servants at the, my daddy's house are eating but you know what if he just stayed there and groveled in his misery he never would have found redemption but he got up and he said, I'm going to go back. And the greatest thing, one of the most beautiful pictures I see in God's word is the fact the father sees him because the father's looking and the father's looking down the road. And as soon as he sees him, the father takes off running to meet the son. There's no, why did you do what you did? I told you this and go this way. There's none of that. There's no judgment. There's no berating. There's no, he knows the kid knows what happened. And yet the father runs to him and embraces him and kisses him and cleans him and gives him a robe and a ring and a place right back in the house. There is no limit to God's grace when we take that step back and we say, God, help! I'm in a bad spot. Naomi did it. She turned back. She turned back to the God who said He would provide as long as Israel served Him and was faithful. God says, I'll take care of you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will give you the food. The land will give you more than you imagine, more than you plant. You'll get it all back. It's the God who gave him advance warning of what would happen in the adverse consequence. It's the God that said, listen, if you touch the hot wood stove, you're going to burn your hand. Don't do it. We all know what that means. We all have taught our kids, don't touch the wood stove. And how many of us had kids that reached up and touched the wood stove? Got those nice little pink burnies on their fingers. You say, hey, I told you. You know, I love you still. And you put your arms around them, you ice water on them, and you know, you soothe them and comfort them. But you still, you told them what would happen. God said, I told you what would happen. But he doesn't hold it over. It's the God that actually delivered Lot 
And amazingly, Lot just turned and his daughters had that other plan created all this. Elimelech left the consequences of ignoring God to run to the consequences of failure to trust God. Because that's what Lot and his daughters did. So can you see how stupid that is? Is that Elimelech went away from a consequence he should have understood to run to a consequence that was obvious in Moab. Moab as a nation embraced Chemosh and embraced other gods. Little G gods. Nothing in it. Naomi takes the first right step. She returns to God to live in his grace, live in his mercy. The consequences of sin are negative all the time, but she's returned to the blessings of obedience. The choice is not because of a cost-benefit analysis on her part. The cost is the result in God's reaching out to her and God visiting Israel is the result of the parent relationship parent-child relationship that God has with his children. He's a good, good father. He doesn't beat his children. This has probably been one of the saddest shifts I've had to take, and yet I'm not sad. I'm sad, but I'm not sad. And this will make sense, hopefully, to you. Um, I do not um, take lightly the requirement of removing children from their families at all. This is the very most sensitive thing that I have in my job. But I watched where a mother had stomped on her 14-year-old child's head, then stood on it, then hit her, then threw her out of the house. And I listened to the words that the mother had for the child when she was yelling and screaming at her. And I, I told Lori this morning, I said, the hardest part about it is, is that was not a movement of mom from love to uh, discipline. It wasn't, it wasn't correction. It, mom expressed to me, still just flat out told me, basically she hates her daughter that she adopted some years back. And hates her, doesn't ever want to see her again doesn't want her back at her house, doesn't want anything to do. And I said, you cannot take a mother's heart and you cannot move from I love you to I hate you in one moment. It is impossible. Mother's hearts are for the children. Their children do wrong. You still love them. You want the best for them. You discipline, you correct them. You do it for love. This mother had written her kid off. And unfortunately, she had five more besides. And I watched these videos that I collected in the course of my job. And it became absolutely clear to me that as much as I respect the family, and, and this was not a family. And this was a situation where somebody said, you know, if I adopt kids, I get some money and I'll have some benefits coming in and I don't have to work. So I'll get a bunch and I'll have a little more money. And it was the saddest thing because I had to take six kids away from their home. And, but it was absolutely clear. There was no choice. 
and mom had to go to jail. And this is, you don't stomp on your kid's head. Mom weighed about 250. Mom had a 10 year old kid underneath her who weighed about 50 pounds and was beating on him. Separate incident, separate kid. And you know, I looked at that and I said, man, I'm glad that God loves me the way he loves me. I'm glad that when I make mistakes and when I choose wrong and I get defiant, God doesn't stomp on my head. I'm glad that God doesn't beat me this way. Um, one of the kids was choked to the point that it caused what's called petechial hemorrhage in the eyes. It's when the blood vessels pop because you've been almost asphyxiated, uh, arm around the neck, choke hold, and you're just on the edge of life and death right there with a child. Should that ever happen? No. You can say no, or you can say yes if you think it should, but no, it should never happen. And, you know, one of the most distasteful things I have to do in my job was that but it was absolutely positive that it had to be done. It had to be done. I'm glad God doesn't treat me with that kind of mothering. I'm glad that God disciplines me with the right attitude. I'm glad that God disciplines me with love to restore my relationship with him. The cost was huge for this family, this family and Ruth. Eliminex family, half the family's gone. And now we saw that Orpah leaves. Now at first she seems pretty solid, right? Orpah's like, no, 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 kiss and hug. We're going to stay with you. We're, we're going to go with you. Naomi's taking the right step. She's at that crossroads. She says it's decision time. She tells the girls, now listen. Why don't you each go back to your own house, go to your families, go to your own gods. You just, you just go back to where you came from and stay there. The Lord hopefully will deal with you better than he dealt with me, verse 8, 9. The Lord grant you that you find rest and you can find a husband. And they kiss and they hug and they weep. And then they both say, Orpah and Ruth say, no, no, we're going to go with you. And, and I think it's interesting because we see next the issue of logic come up. This human logic by which we evaluate our circumstances. We evaluate our circumstances quite often. And Naomi presents this. She says, no, no, my daughters, why would you go with me? Am I young enough to still have babies? Can I get a husband today and then have a couple boys so that they'll grow up? Will you stay around while, while they're growing up so that you can marry them and then have children and then be taken care of? Will you do that? And you think about that. What does that require? Well, if she had to go get a marriage, <laughs> nice. At minimum, what are the guys, you know, 18 years, 15, 16 years, the girls would just sit around, wait, and then they'd be that much older than the husband that would come. And, you know, so she presents a logical thing. Listen, uh, why don't you just go back 
And then you can have hope. You can go find a husband. You can stay in your own country. You can be here where you know everything. Verse um, 14, they lifted up their voices. They cried again. There's a big blubber fest going on right here. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Now, or they'd already kissed before. That's the thing, you know, it's like a Middle Eastern kind of, oh, you know, let me soothe you. Let me, you know, but it also was a thing when you said goodbye. And what's interesting is Orpah, for all her original words, oh, no, 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 we're going to go back with you. How much did it take for her to change her mind? When she realized she was not going to get married. No husband, no food, no shelter, no job, no work, no paycheck, no position, no comfortable life, no two kids in a car, no retirement account, no whatever, is it didn't take her too long to go, you know what? <laughs> I think I'm going to go on back to Moab. I ain't staying here. Uh, you're right. And she kissed her. And, and in this, I, I wrote a little note a long time ago when I was studying this, is this a Judas kiss? You know, when Judas was with Jesus, he was there for some years of ministry. And uh, he ran around Jesus. He was in the center core of everything, involved with stuff. And I'm sure when it was good, it was good. And then when it got a little rocky, what happened? When Judas couldn't see the future right in front of him and his limited vision, when he couldn't, he's thinking the money. What are we going to do if we don't have money? What are we going to do if we don't have food? What do we do? We're going to go to a place to stay. How quick Judas moved from I'm part of the group to I'm going to betray Jesus. What was missing with Judas? Heart. Commitment. What was missing with Orpah? I mean, she had the flowery words. I love you, I love you. I'll tell you, sad thing that I see over and over again, because we deal with so many family disputes, so many domestic violence incidents daily. Oh, I love him, I love him, I love him. Oh, I love her, I love her, I love her. And I just want to see my favorite. And then 10 minutes later, we get called out because they're beating the tar out of each other. This gal yesterday went through a house like with a chainsaw. She pulled ceiling fans off the, off the ceiling, yanked them right out of the wiring, out of the ceiling, broke mirrors everywhere, uh, slung A1 and Tabasco sauce all over the kitchen. Um, she poked holes and stuff. She dumped out drawers and then stomped on the drawers and broke them because they're in love. Do you think he has love? I think Orpah was in it for the good times. Orpah was like, hey, there's a dude from another country. He looks pretty good, you know. It doesn't matter. His name's Chilion, and he's uh, sickly. <laughs> doesn't matter either. Or he's Malon, and he's dead. Finished. But man, this is kind of exciting. You know, this guy, this Judean dude comes into town, get married. Uh, look, we're going to live it up. And all of a sudden, Limelech's dead. And then her husband's dead. And Naomi's headed back to Judea, to Bethlehem. She's like, well, well I'm going to go too. And then Naomi says, listen, think about this logically. What, what's there for you? What, what are you going to get out of the deal? And boy, it sure didn't take her long to give that kiss and say, you know what? You're right. I'm out of here. I'm gone. And the, the contrast between them is absolute there in verse 14 at the end. Orpah kissed her and said goodbye. But what did Ruth do? 
Ruth had a grip on her. Ruth had a grip, and she wasn't letting go. Orpah, her name, flowing gazelle. Well, she ran back home to the worldly answer, back to the sure thing. It's just logical, right? She just gave that kiss and gone. It's no big deal. The investment was not much. The heart was not connected. There was no commitment. And to, we ask that question a lot. How come uh, marriage is so fragile in America today? How come people spend ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars or more on a wedding, and then like a year later they're hating each other, getting restraining orders? How does that happen? How does it get to that point? How does the mom go from, oh, I love you, I want to adopt you and keep you, you're my kid. Now I'm gonna beat the tar out of you, and if you don't shut up, I'm gonna kill you. You know, how does that go from there to there? It's a heart issue. That's what's wrong. It's a heart issue. There's a parallel story, which I think is interesting. Ruth says, I'm going. And, and you ask, what drew her to Naomi? Do you think it was a bank account? Do you think it was a future land and money? What in the world drew Ruth to stick with Naomi? She's a Moabite. She come from a country with a different God. What in the world happened to her that she says, I'm clinging to you. You ain't going anywhere without me. I'll tell you what it was. She met the God of Naomi. She met the God of Naomi and there was a heart connection that was made that was knit and it was solid. Naomi was a vehicle that she met God through, but I'll tell you what, it made a difference to her and it comes out in her words. When Ruth talks, listen to what Ruth says. Naomi says, listen, you know, I really appreciate your sister-in-law's gone back though to her people and to her gods. Naomi actually brings up the issue why Orpah's running back so quick is she's going back to her people and her gods. Her gods. We talked about her gods. But what Ruth says is telling. Ruth said, uh, where are we at? Verse 16 there. Entreat me not. Please stop asking me to leave you or to turn back from following after you. And I love these statements of commitment for wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. And then here's her, here's her guarantee. Here's her confidence statement. The Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. It's kind of a pattern of what you used to hear in wedding vows, right? What's that about? Is it a commitment for seven years, two years, while it's fun, while it's fast, while it's flowery? Is that what that's supposed to be? No, marriage in God's word is patterned after God's relationship with us. God is not an on again, off again spouse. He's in it for the long haul. He's in it for the full commitment. He's in it till death. He's in it till death. He died for us on the cross. He showed us his commitment. He showed us his determination. He showed us his heart was knit with our heart when we were brought into the family of God. Ruth said the same thing. Ruth says, I'm in it. I'm not leaving. Till I die, 
You're stuck with me. Your God is my God. Your people, identified by your God, are my people. If we're going back to famine, we're going back to famine together. We'll be hungry together. We're going to stay together. I love her commitment, but she's a Moabite. She's the result of a consequence to fail to trust God. She's the result of a nation that sacrifices babies. She's the result of a people that have been enemies of the people of Israel this whole time. She's coming from the worst of circumstances, the worst of human choices. And yet look at God's redemption. You, well, you can't see it yet because you haven't read ahead. Or maybe you remember a little bit of it. But folks... This story of Ruth is not just a little side game. This is a central component of the birth, human birth of Jesus Christ on this earth is happening right here in this story. Her commitment is a pivotal key point of what God is doing in the bigger picture. Naomi looks at her. And when she sees, this verse 18, when she sees she was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her. And uh, I used to read that, and I thought, well, man, that's kind of mean. I ain't going to talk to you no more. <laughs> that was a long, quiet walk back to Bethlehem. Right? What does that mean? She quit trying to persuade her. Because what did she see? Commitment. Commitment. She saw her heart was wholly involved. She saw truth at its source. She saw that, like we should see, Jesus Christ, he came to save the lost. And I'm always reminded he said that. He didn't say, I'm coming to save the fat, happy, and dumb. He said, I came to seek and save that which was lost. Not the found. It's the lost. It's the, the Canaanites and the Moabites and the ones who may have found themselves in really poor places. And, and this, this, this little story of Ruth captures so much of God's grace and his mercy outside of Israel. I want to take you to a parallel uh, to this in the New Testament. Matthew chapter uh, 15 verse uh, 22 through 28 just six short verses and in this um, Jesus is in his ministry man he's just fed uh, 4,000 people and um, straightened up some stuff with the disciples he's revealed to them uh, that his death is imminent Nope, sorry, that's a little bit further on. He's almost, he's healed, uh, fed 5,000. He's almost going to feed the 4,000. And we're back here in verse uh, 21, actually. Then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And that's uh, right on the coastline. It's above Israel a little bit. And behold, a woman of Canaan, came to him from that region and he cried out to him saying have mercy on me O Lord son of David my daughter is severely demon possessed but he answered her not a word 
And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she cries after us. But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then she came and she worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she said, Yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed that very hour. This is, uh, I call a parallel to it, because uh, what was Ruth? What country was she from? Moab. She was a Moabite. What, were, uh, what was one of the countries that God said, uh, seven countries that God said you're not to intermarry with? You, uh, God has judged them, and so when you go into the land, you're supposed to move them out of the land. What was one of those countries? Moab. No, not Moab. No. Mo Moab was not part of the seven. It, it was, Ammonite was not part of the seven. One, just one. I just read it to you. Canaanites. The people of Canaanites, or the people of Canaan, which would be the Canaanites. That's one of them. Jebusites, Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, there's Gibbusites, there's all those Ites, Ites, Ites. Okay, you don't need to memorize them and have them all down, but what you need to understand is that God had declared judgment against some nations because of the blood on their hands and their rejection of God, and their sin had filled up, and God said, when you go in the land, you do not intermarry into them, you do not associate with them, you stay away from their gods, you don't deal with them. You just get them out of the country. Well, unfortunately, Israel didn't pay attention and Israel let them stay. God says, guess what? The Canaanites and the Jebusites and the Hittites and the Hivites and the Jebusites and all those, they're now going to be a pain in your neck all the time. Guess what? Anybody ever heard of Middle East problems? Anybody ever heard about that little tiny country called Israel that's surrounded by Gaza? And that's the land of Canaan. And uh, there's still a battle going on today. It has remained a battle since the time of Joshua. And it's still going on today. So here's a Canaanite gal comes up to Jesus. Her daughter is demon-possessed. And in a lot of ways you could say that's maybe to be expected by the choices and the gods they served and the doors they opened to Satan. Maybe that's to be expected. You say, well, God didn't like them anyway God judged them Jesus he knew his ministry he knew that he had to be about the father's business which was to reach the lost sheep of Israel his ministry was to them here comes this Gentile woman talking to him she needs her daughter healed and Jesus doesn't answer her at first and I thought well man that's kind of mean that's kind of cold what's he doing but you know what just like Naomi told Orpah and Ruth Go on back home. No, no, no. You need to go back. You know, what can I, can I get you a kid? Jesus, not answering her, gave her an opportunity to demonstrate her commitment to why she was asking Jesus in the first place. Was she asking Jesus because he was popular? Maybe. Was she asking Jesus because uh, he was available? Probably. But at the bottom of it, her heart was committed because she knew the truth that he was the one who could heal her daughter. And so the conversation comes, the, the disciples are getting bent out of shape. 
dude, this gal is making noise. She's following us. She's a pain. Can you just get rid of her, Jesus? Jesus says, hold on. See what happens here. And then they have this conversation about bread and dogs. And man, that doesn't make a lot of sense until you understand Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread that my father brought down from heaven. I'm the manna. I am that bread that sustains you. And in his immediate ministry to Israel, it was again a picture. It was a roadmap. It was a sign. It was a painting of God's story of redemption and salvation. He's the living water. He's the good shepherd. He's the vine. We are the branches. All those things are just paintings and pictures that God put in so that it's not just words we're looking at. It's actually something we can see, feel, hear, touch. And it directs us back to God. In this case, the disciples would just like, get her out of here. And she says, Lord, help me. Again, her commitment. There it is. Her taking that step in faith. Lord, help me. He says, it's not good to take that bread which God brought to the nation of Israel, me, the bread of life, and throw it to the little dogs. And he wasn't calling her a dog in the sense of a derogatory term. It's just those little pets in the house that run around and lick up the stuff that's on the floor. You know, as you don't take the main meal. Well, some do. Pastor Ron always talked about um, Breaky. And Breaky would have a bowl of ice cream. And he'd get him a big old scoop of ice cream. And he'd eat his scoop. And he had a big old St. Bernard dog that slung slobber all over the house. And the dog would stand right next to him looking at the ice cream bowl. And Breaky would get a scoop and eat it. And then he'd get another scoop and... He'd give it to the dog. Then he'd get him a scoop, and they'd give it to the dog. <laughs> and uh, that dog was pretty well done, pretty well taken care of at Breaky's house. But she understands that God's ministry to Israel does not preclude her. Because she sees him not just as Israel's savior. She sees him as the savior of the world. And she says, listen, even those little dogs around the table get a little crumb, and they eat that up. And, and Jesus immediately recognized her faith, her confidence in him. Yeah, he, he gave her a little test. He gave her a little test to see if he didn't answer, was she just going to go away? Naomi gave the girls a little test to see if they were going to go away. You know, come on, girls. You, just go back. you got family here. Go back. No, 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 we're going to come. Okay. Well, you know I can't give you a husband. You know that it can't go well for your Orpah's like, oh, psh, gone, flowing gazelle back to Moab. Ruth says, uh-uh, baby. She clings. So what is it we cling to? Well, I hope it's truth in your life. Ruth's commitment was absolutely steadfast. Her heart was single-minded and she was determined. Naomi logically argues, your sister's gone. And Ruth's confession, Ruth's testimony of her faith in God is revealed in what she says to Naomi her allegiance is not just to Naomi. Her allegiance goes about Naomi's God. It goes about God's people. It goes to death. She's willing to go the distance. Somewhere along the line, Ruth had seen Naomi's faith, faith despite the lack of a comfy church style, despite the lack of a guaranteed benefit, the lack, despite the lack of a visible future, despite the lack of even the next meal or a place to sleep 
or the promise of children and a family to come. And I ask myself this when I come, who did Ruth accept, Naomi or the God Naomi believed in? And I think the answer is obvious is she accepted the God Naomi believed in. The God that drew Naomi back home. The God that called Naomi back to repentance. So I ask myself, what am I, where am I finding and placing my trust, my refuge, my future? Is it on the promises of a godless people? That's where Orpah went. She went back home for the sure thing. Was it about the government, the free food? As an interesting thing happened in Haiti. Um, they had the earthquakes quite a while back ago. Pretty bad. And 300,000 people died. And the United States government sailed some boats over there and they started to hand out rice at the docks. And what they did is they printed a United States flag on the back of their 50 pound rice bag that they would give people. And everybody would line up every day for a 50 pound bag of rice. Now that as an immediate stopgap measure is not a bad thing. Is they need some food. But they continued to do it well past the point. And so what happened is the farmers that were out in the field says, why am I planting rice that no one buys in these fields? Why am I working when all I need to do is ride into the docks, stand in line, and I will get a bag of rice with a flag on it. And so people quit working. And the population of Port-au-Pay, uh, Port-au-Prince, excuse me, the main city, swelled. Because people were just hanging around. Because you just get your rice. Free rice. They gave up their occupations. They gave up their jobs, their families, their land. They gave up their crops. They gave up their orchards. They gave up their vineyards that required daily going out there and doing work. And instead, they stood in line. And that flag on the bag became a symbol of a handout. And then one day, and it happened when they had another earthquake, is suddenly they stopped distributing rice. And no one knew what to do in the country. They had been almost 10, 15 years without, I mean, having that handout. And now all of a sudden they didn't have a handout. Oh, and, and the cries went out and they started handing it back out. What they had done is they enslaved the population for what was free. Free. It wasn't free at all. It cost them their livelihoods. It cost them their occupations. It cost them their land. It caused them to live in slums. It caused them to live in 8 million people on a floodplain with no medical system that can back it up. It caused them to live in abject poverty. It caused them to live where now gangs control the majority of Port-au-Prince, where they just assassinated the president in his house that was actually trying to benefit the country. You know what he tried to do to benefit the country? He's tried to put everybody back to work. He said, let's build roads, but I'm only hiring Haitians to build roads. Only our people will build the roads. No outside contractors, no European contractors, you know, United States contractors bringing in contract labor because we're going to use Haitians. We're going to use the actual people of our country to go out and work. And you know what? The powers that be, the powers behind the free handout, the power behind the next stimulus check, the power behind the religion of medicine, pharmacia, said, oh, no, 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 we can't have that. And they went and assassinated the president. And guess what? There were white people 
there were outside mercenaries that came and did that job to assassinate the president. It wasn't Haitians that did it in-house. This was a good president, according to my missionary friends that are there. He was assassinated because he was putting the people back to work. He was putting them back to where they had independence. He had, they had freedom. And the ones who had enslaved them said, no, nah, nah, not going to happen. So they killed the president, beat his wife. And I see in America today, there is a religion in our country of my safety. There's a religion of, uh, well, someone will provide for me. There's a religion of my safety net. There's a religion of, uh, I can depend on the system to bail me out. Christian, where does your allegiance and your dependence lie? Primarily on God. He told you you're going to have to work. It's not that you sit around your house and God delivers a box of food. Although as a kid growing up, that happened at our house. My dad told that testimony many times. Didn't have much. A bunch of us kids sitting around there. And uh, they're looking in the fridge. There's nothing. Looking in the cupboards. There's nothing. And they said, well, we're just going to pray about it and ask God. We'll get by. We'll figure it out. And somebody knocks on the door. Hey, I had a whole bunch of meat. Uh, can you put it in your freezer? You know, here's some food, box of beans, whatever. And uh, folks just, God showed up at the right time. And I, I, Mary could tell you the same. Uh, we never had a lack we never had a lack. We, we never noticed it as kids that there were lean times. Because we had, we had life. We had Christ as the center of our house. We had a relationship with God that was demonstrated for us with our parents. And it was our people. It was our life. It was our truth. And I go out in the world today and I see people without truth, without hope, without faith. And I see the consequences of their choices and their decisions, and it makes me incredibly sad. But the answer is still the same. It's Jesus. My dependence has to be primarily upon God. If I'm looking for something else to save me, there is no God. There is no God of the Bible in our government system. I know our founding fathers founded this country on godly principles, and many of them were very godly people and they wrote and they spoke and they opened in prayer and they built our country on that. We were long past that. We're in the death throes now. Medical term, it's called agonal breathing. Some who know medicine know all about it. It's like a frog, fish out of water, gulping. And yeah, guppy breathing. It has no value to the body at all. It's not sustainable uh, breathing. And um, I think that's where we are. Can we be saved? Yeah, but it's going to take God doing an amazing work. It's going to take some people in confession and prayer and turning back to God. It's going to take that. The history of the world says we're probably not going to be. The history of nations in the world that God has dealt with says we're probably not. It's not going to happen. You say, what's the future? I don't know. Well, what am I going to do about tomorrow? I don't know. What am I going to eat tomorrow? I don't know. What am I going to have in my bank account? I don't know. But I know the God who knows it all. I know the God who has it all in control. I know the God who's not panicking. I know the God who will sustain me, whether in life or death, in eternity. I know that God. 
I know Ruth's God. I know Naomi's God. And that's where my confidence lies. When I step out of my car to go to a call, I carry a gun, I carry pepper spray and extra bullets and a knife and a baton and a radio and a backup of a whole bunch of people, but none of those are the things I depend upon. When I step out of my car to go do my job, it's the God I serve. And it's amazing how many times God has intervened in situations where people are angry and they're upset and they're trying to fight. And God has given me amazing uh, opportunity and grace. And some people I have just touched and they would have been fighting and they'll just stop. They'll just stop. That's God's power. It's not my power. That's my confidence is I don't fear what man can do to me. Because even if they shoot me, it doesn't matter. I have an eternity with Jesus Christ. I have a future with him. Where does our confidence lie? Are we a Ruth or are we an Orpah? There's the decision. Are we a Ruth or are we an Orpah? I would encourage you to look. Uh, we're not doing it today for the sake of time, but in Joshua 24, uh, 14 and 15, Joshua has a little conversation with the people, much like, much like we just had. And he says, listen, if you don't think God can do it, then go, do, go serve your other gods. Go to Moab. Go to Ammon. Go to Canaanite gods. Do whatever you want to go do. He says, but for me and my house, we're going to serve God. <coughs> Bottom line. That's it. We're going to serve God. There's no option. There's no wavering. Single-mindedness is going to serve God. That's all I can do. All right. Let's have some prayer requests if we have any. We got any prayer requests? Go ahead, Mark. Pray for my Joshua. He's named after the book of Joshua. And Absolutely. The just spoke. Yep. Okay. Anybody else? Mary. Uh, do you, patience, P-A-T-I-E-N-T-S, or, or the other kind? No, not, not patience as we do. For once, it wasn't that patience. It was actual patience. Just, I just... Copy that. Families. Yep. Anybody else? Roscoe. Yeah, I was listening to the radio today on the way up, and this guy was talking about one of the reasons he thought that the nation has not Yeah. And I thought, you know, that makes a lot of sense because read it says, you know, I will bless those who bless Israel. Yep. And I will curse those who curse Israel. So How's that doing right now, though? Well, I think we need to lift up Israel. Yep. Absolutely. And as a nation, though, how are we doing with that? No. Not real good. Yeah. Okay. Paul. Yeah. I, uh, when, I, when I got saved in 1964, I was about 